All right, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. May we understand by your word that you must be lifted up, that we live. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, our sin can often put us in, in positions. Now, again, our sermon passage here is Numbers chapter 21, uh, 4 through 9. But our sin can often put us in positions or situations that, that really hurt us. I don't know if you've been in this situation before. I'm sure you have. These situations we find ourselves in could be the natural consequence of sin, like a, a broken relationship or maybe a physical side effect. But it could also be uh, situations that are, are meant for our discipline, that are meant for our instruction. Our Lord is patient with us when we sin. And he always grants us more mercy than we ever deserve or realize. But he also disciplines us for our sin. The psalmist says that the Lord's rod and staff comfort him. The rod of discipline and the staff of a shepherd comfort him. His discipline and his loving direction both comfort the psalmist. This is because the Lord's discipline always has a purpose for the Christian. And this purpose is to lead us to faith and dependence on him and him alone. And when we think of this in light of Jesus' words, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, we can see how wonderfully gracious he is to us. The purpose of him leading us to faith and dependence on him is to give us something. It's to give us himself, life and truth. Our God is not, he's not a megalomaniac, right? He does not desire our full devotion purely for his sake. He does not need our affection. He desires it. And he brings us into his everlasting life because he loves us and he cares for his creatures. Our Lord is self-giving. And even when he chastises us in our sin, his purpose is to always lead us back to life and life in his son, Jesus Christ. Our Father in heaven demands of us faith because faith in him means life in him. And when we view examples of sin in Scripture, whether it be Israel grumbling in the wilderness, as we'll see here, or David sinning with Bathsheba, or Solomon disobeying God's word, or Peter denying the Lord three, th- three times, the discipline, the discipline that they receive, it always brings them back to something. It always brings them back to the Lord and the Lord of life. In fact, the wisdom for the Christian, wisdom that we have in, 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 the, in the scriptures, the wisdom that the Lord gives us, is not, always, is not always that we do the right thing. It's not always that we have the, the right solution to every problem. That's not, that's not biblical wisdom. It's to love and receive discipline when you sin and to grow from it and to receive the life that God offers you. It's to be humble. Harsh discipline is for him who forsakes the way and he who hates correction will die. Proverbs 15.10 Now in Numbers 21, we are reminded of the harsh discipline received by the people of God when they forget the mercies and graces of their Father in heaven. And they fell into sin. The Lord knew that the only way these people will truly repent 
is if he made them like the dust of the earth, if he humbled them with physical affliction. Israel's sin brought judgment upon them. And they had no choice to they had no choice but to either turn to God and live or continue in their sin and perish. Those were the only two options. Now fortunately they confessed And the Lord provided a way for them to receive life and deliverance. But it's not the way that they expected. It's not the way that they asked. He did not take their suffering away from them. But made a way for them to trust Him for healing in the midst of their suffering. And faith is what what God desires from us. Our devotion to Him, our allegiance to Him is what He desires from us. Though we may be stung by various trials, if we look to Christ in faith... We gain everlasting life. And to see this this beautiful truth more clearly, let's begin in Numbers 21, starting with verse 4. Israel's traveling here from from Mount Hor, which is on the border of the land of Edom. And they're making their way around this land by the Red Sea through a desert in Arabia. So this isn't a a hospitable environment that they're entering into. This is actually worse than the wilderness that the wilderness of sin that they were previously in. There's nothing in this desert. And this is made known by the fact that they're complaining that they don't have any food, they don't have any water. All they have is this miserable bread that the Lord keeps providing them. They're passing through this land, if you'll remember, to get to the land flowing with milk and honey, the land that is fruitful. So they're passing through the desert to get to a land that is full of all the goodness that they ever need or desire. The land of promise and blessing. The land of Canaan. But to get there, Israel must go through various trials. He must be sharpened through the wilderness period. And he must trust solely in the Lord to provide. The new life that they are promised in the land of Canaan is obtained by faith. It always has been. It always has been and it always will be. But instead of persevering and trusting in our Lord, Israel complains that the Lord brought them out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. Now before we get too harsh with Israel, we have to remember where they are, what they've been through up until this point. What they're going through is actually truly difficult. It's not, um, it's not the things that we tend to complain about. They've been brought through A lot of trials already. They have lost even loved ones, I'm sure, along the way. They're suffering from extreme heat, from exhaustion, hunger, thirst. And again, they've probably already lost quite a few people along the journey. We aren't talking about a bunch of whiners who complain that their feet hurt from walking a couple miles. We're talking about real hardship that they're going through. These are dire situations that Israel is being put through. And even so... The Lord demands that they trust Him. He's fulfilled His promises before already. They know who this God is and what, what He's done for them. It is safe to say that they had no excuse but to trust in God. But how many times have we complained about our own situations? Whether the AC goes out on a hot day or maybe the, uh, we had a, a member who had a, a boiler go out on one of the coldest days of the year. right? Those are hard situations to be put through. Maybe the car dies on the, on the way to work and you don't have the money to fix it. Or maybe they just get your order wrong at Wendy's. right? And we complain and we grumble and we 
we get frustrated with God. We just can't take it anymore, right? How often do we complain over trivial problems? So maybe we can identify with Israel a little bit more than we think. Maybe what they're going through is harder than what we go through. This is because we are weak, we are fragile, we are forgetful creatures. It takes time to walk, right? So the last time they grumbled and complained in the wilderness, they may have forgot about that. It was only one time, right? There's only, there only one time we got upset with Moses, so we'll do it again. So as a response of their sin of complaining and accusing God, because that's what they did, the Lord judges them by sending fiery serpents to bite and even kill them. If they wanted to complain about something, they have something to complain about now. They've got these fiery serpents, these poisonous serpents, biting and killing them. Now remember, remember what, they, what the Lord told Israel uh, in the land of Egypt, Exodus chapter 4. He told Israel by speaking to Pharaoh, he made this declaration about Israel. Israel is God's firstborn son. Israel, the whole nation, is God's firstborn son. Our Father in heaven disciplines his son when he strays from his ways, from his instruction. And this is exactly what the Lord is doing here with the serpents. He's taught them what to do. They disobeyed, and he's disciplining them. Now, it's important to note that there is a reason why God is sending serpents to attack his people. Think about where you hear, uh, hear the phrase serpent or see that image in the scriptures. Well, we go to the garden with the great serpent, Satan. The Lord sends a serpent into the garden. Satan didn't just meander himself in there. He was sent there. He was sent there to teach Israel, to teach Adam. And like the garden, Israel can either turn to Yahweh, turn to God, and live or be devoured by the serpent. Now, if you'll remember the words that God gave the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, in judgment, he says that the serpent will now crawl on his belly and eat the dust. Now, a friend of mine pointed out this week that men are made of dust, right? Adam was made of dust. He was breathed in, uh, he was given life, the breath of life, from dust. We are from dust, and to dust we shall return. And this plague was a reminder to Israel that they are mortal, they are fragile, and that the Lord is the giver and sustainer of all life. Not the water, not the manna, not any other thing that the Lord gives, but him and him alone. Our Lord alone gives life to man. He was dust until God breathed life into him. And so he sends serpents to devour the dust of the earth. God brought serpents to point to another truth as well. The great serpent Satan devours men with sin and death. Sin is service to Satan and his works. And Israel is now being consumed by their own sin. Israel, Israel's sin is grumbling and complaining to God with their tongues. So what does the Lord do? He sends serpents to bite them. Fiery serpents. And as James says, no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. The tongue is full of deadly poison. They received the same poison that they spewed to God. 
an eye for an eye. We also see enemies of God being described as serpents. In the Gospels, Matthew chapter 23 being one of them, Jesus calls the Pharisees serpents and a brood of vipers because they seek to poison the people of God with doctrines and laws that lead them to rebellion and death rather than to life. They rejected the way of Christ that leads to the kingdom of God. So in a sense, the Pharisees and scribes of Jesus' day were like those serpents who poisoned the people of God in order to drive some to Christ. And this is exactly what this trial does for the people of Israel. They appealed to Moses. They confessed their sin directly and asked Moses to speak to the Lord on their behalf to remove the serpents. And by Moses' acceptance of this confession, we see that the confession is actually genuine. That these people are actually confessing their sin. They, they realize that they have offended God and they turn to him for forgiveness. They are actually confessing their sin. They weren't just saying what needed to be said for the snakes to go away. They knew that the reason why this affliction was given to them was because they had sinned against God. Now, sometimes it's fairly obvious that the rough time that you experience is a result of your own sin. Sometimes that's, that's really obvious for us. And growing up, for example, there had been many times in my own life when, when I had done something that I was taught not to do. Or else this or, or that would happen to you. There's consequences for the sins that you commit. And I did it anyways, only to tell myself afterward, yeah, I deserve that one, right? You've had those situations where you sinned and... The result of the sin comes and you receive some affliction from it and you say, that makes sense. I deserve that. I was told not to do it. I did it. And now I'm suffering the consequence. So there are those times when it's really obvious that our sins lead to suffering. So what was the solution for God's people? They appealed to God to take away the serpents. And what was God's response? Well, he told Moses to fashion bronze into the likeness of a snake and place it on a pole in the midst of the people. Now, that seems fairly odd to do. And it's not exactly what the people asked. But he did it anyways. And all those who would look on the serpent would be healed from the poison of the snake bites. Now, there's a few things to notice here that are, that are really interesting. Notice that the snake is made in the likeness of the serpent, but does not possess the poison of the serpent. God didn't tell him to kill a snake and put it on the pole. He told him to fashion a snake in the likeness of the fiery serpents. They do not possess the poison of the serpent. And it cannot because it's not living. So the people of God were told to look upon a powerless, dead serpent and live. As one church father put it, the bronze serpent was killed, and killed with it were the powers that were subject to it. So in other words, they looked upon a conquered serpent in faith. A serpent whose bite could not kill them any longer. This serpent was raised up in front of Israel to look to in faith to not get rid of the bites, but to get rid of the power of the bites. 
He didn't actually answer the prayer of Israel the way they wanted to. They wanted the snakes gone. They wanted them to leave. Instead, he removes the poison that killed them. The power of the serpent were taken away. The fiery poison was taken from their bites for those who believed and obeyed the Lord's command. In the same way, our trials or even consequences of our sin may not be taken away simply because we ask them to, simply because we confess them and pray to God to take them away. The Lord sometimes keeps us in our trials in order for our faith to be strengthened and refined. It's easy to go straight back to ingratitude and complaining and grumbling when we are immediately given reprieve from the consequences of our sin. But true gratitude and true faith is fostered when we are forgiven and still have to deal with the effects of sin. Our faith is strengthened under hardship. Because comforts often make us soft and make us forgetful. So the Lord keeps them among the serpents but removes the deadly poison. And I hope by now we can see the parallels of this event in the crucifixion of our Lord. We just read John chapter 3, 14 through 15. Jesus, of course, is not a serpent. But in his death, he put to death the sting of death. He put to death the guilt of sin and the power of Satan. And this is even how our Lord interprets Numbers 21 in John chapter 3. He speaks to Nicodemus in the middle of the night and says this, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. So our Lord is making this connection between the lifting up of the bronze serpent in Numbers 21 and his crucifixion and even his ascension into the heavenly places. Now again, he's not the serpent. That's not the point. The image is reserved for the enemies of God. But just as the bronze serpent was made in the likeness of the fiery serpents, yet without poison, the Son of Man was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, yet without sin. And just as the serpent was lifted up on the pole as an image of the defeat of the serpent's sting, so too was the Son of Man lifted up on a cross as an image of the defeat of death's sting and the serpent's power. So the lifting up of the serpent on the pole is a triumphant display. It's a triumphant display over the principalities and powers of the time. It's a triumphant display over the fiery snakes. And the lifting up of the Lord on the cross is a triumphant display over the principalities and powers under heaven. Just as the Israelites looked on the bronze serpent in the wilderness and were cured of their poisonous bites, so are those who look on Christ on the cross in faith. And they are healed of the poisonous bite of sin, Satan, death, and hell. And this is what we are called to do. This is, this is the exhortation of Numbers 21. We are to look to Christ and Him crucified in faith. And our trials and our hardships are given for us, given to us for this very reason. That we look to our Lord Jesus 
and his death and on our behalf and the healing found in his wounds in faith. The cross of Christ is not just some event in history that we remember and we look back on and think fondly of. It is an act of salvation that we must look to in faith to be healed. Our sins leave us in ruin. There may be unconfessed sin in your life that needs to be dealt with. And it is never too late to look to Jesus and be healed. Our Lord Jesus is the crucified and the risen Christ. His cross is forever effectual for those who look upon it in faith. So believe and trust in the death of our Lord Jesus, and he promises healing. He may not take away your pain. He may not take away your situation, your hardship. But he will most certainly grant you the life necessary to endure it. Not just life in the future. Not just life when you're dead. Not just life at the end of history. But life right now. Joy, love, and gratitude in the midst of your pain. A new life on earth. A taste of the heavenly gifts. A glimpse into heaven on earth. And this is what the kingdom of God is. Heaven on earth. And he promises his kingdom to all who look on him in faith. The kingdom of life. And this command to look to Christ and him crucified is not just for those who are outside the faith to come into the faith. It is for all of us. We are commanded to remember his death until he comes. And this is more than just remembering in our heads. It's more than just thinking about Jesus on a cross dying for us. To look upon Christ crucified in faith is to crucify your own desires. It's to crucify your passions. It is to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. Speaking here of baptism. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. So to look upon Christ crucified is to die yourself. And in dying, you receive the life of Christ. And this is what it means to receive eternal life. The only good in you is Christ. The only true life in you is the life of Christ. And when you view your life this way, a life of self-denial, a life of putting to death the deeds of the flesh, a life of faith in your Lord Jesus Christ, your trials and your heartaches and your suffering become bearable. And in fact, not just bearable, but joyful. You can joy in your sufferings. There is a promised hope of everlasting life in the kingdom of God at the end of this suffering. And that is what you can hope for. There is a purpose to these hardships. Total reliance on Christ, which leads to life and joy. That is the purpose. Our God does not promise that our lives will be easy or free from pain. But he does promise that all, all of that, all of those situations will purposefully shape us more into the image of Jesus Christ if we look on him in faith, who is the life and light of men. Now in the church more broadly, not just personally, I think we can see that this time in the history of the American church especially 
is a time of increasing trial. And it is mostly self-inflicted. We have no zeal for the worship of God, so we cannot meet for worship. We have no courage in the face of the world, so worldly influences and ideologies take over. We forsake the clear teachings of Scripture, so our churches fall apart at the seams. It is our duty as Christians to own up to our sins, both personally and collectively, and to realize that the only help that we have is in Christ our King. We are to look to to Christ, to our Lord Jesus, and live. And we can often look to the experts. We can often look for, uh, for the, the doctors, the, the politicians, the academics, even the pastors, for security, for salvation, and for life. But that's not the command that our Lord gives us. Don't look to the experts. Look to Christ and Him crucified. Look to the one who, made, who was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, yet without sin. Look to the one who was raised on the cross in victory over the principalities and powers of this world. Look to the one who became sin for us, though he knew no sin. Look to the one who bore the curse of the crown of thorns on his brow for us. Look to the one who cried out in victory, it is finished. Look to the one who was buried in the earth, who returned dust to dust, yet triumphed on the third day. Look to the one who ascended into the heavenly places and was crowned, not with a curse, but with glory to rule over heaven and earth. Look to your crucified, risen, and ascended Lord, and you will live. This is the end. This is the purpose of all trial and all discipline and all suffering. Life in Christ and in his kingdom, in a world without end. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.